Hello, I'm Charles Mallett with an interview for UK Column. Posted with this will be notes and links that pertain to the interview and they will be available at ukcolumn.org. Now, today I'm very pleased to be joined by Angus McIntosh, who is a farmer of the Spear Estate near Stellenbosch. And I think we'll have an awful lot to talk about today. So, Angus, thank you very much indeed for joining me from South Africa. And to get started, I think it would be great if you could paint a, a broad brush picture for the audience and just explain, please, what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think with a specific bent on the on the regenerative aspect of your project. Charles, it's such a privilege to see you again, man. I uh, So we farm uh, just outside of Stellenbosch, which is uh, about half an hour from Cape Town. And I'm delighted you mentioned the word regenerative. So I'm very happy to talk about what we do. But before we talk about what we do, we need to talk about why we do what we do. As, as the, it's, the why is much more powerful than the what and the how. At the fundamental motivation behind why, why we do what we do is that the human species, to quote Vandana Shiva, is committing species-wide suicide. So it doesn't matter where in the world that you look, the cancer rates are going parabolic. Uh, female eggs have plummeted. Male sperm counts have fallen off a cliff even more precipitously than, 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 than female. The only place in the world where the population is still growing is sub-Saharan Africa. And then the quality of life of most humans is, is, is pretty miserable, um, considering how many pharmaceuticals they take and rates of depression and, and, and all of these things. You know, the... the we, we are literally killing ourselves. And, and agriculture is one of the primary ways in which we're doing it. Uh, and, and, and it's also not talked about. Uh, I, in a previous life, was a Goldman Sachs stockbroker. I then built houses. Uh, nobody, until I by chance stumbled on this regenerative agriculture, really cared about their food. You know, we, we've grown up uh, in this world where we're told it doesn't matter what we eat, what we think, what we do, what we say. There's a pill to fix everything. And, 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 and so, so then if we go back to agriculture, there are only two forms of agriculture. It's a binary exercise. You're either improving the environmental ecosystems on your farm or you're not. And the easiest way to measure that is what's happening with the carbon. You can measure biodiversity and water and all these other things. But if you're increasing the carbon in your soil, you're, building, you're increasing the scaffolding of life. And everything from there is a virtuous upward circle. Whereas if you're pulling the carbon out of the soil, which sadly most of agriculture does, then you did, you're breaking down all the systems. Uh, it doesn't matter where you travel, Charlie. You can travel through the UK, we can travel through the US, we can travel through Africa. Most farmers are involved in a destructive exercise. And that's not, it's mostly not because they actually destruct the people. They come from a system that is extractive. So we, 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 we've got to talk about the capitalist system within which we all function. It's an extremely short-sighted, extractive system. Um... Yeah, so, so I'm happy to talk about the what we do. If, if, if you'd like to touch on that, it's really very simple. We raise livestock. We produce wine. Uh, we do a little bit of organic vegetables. And the way we improve our – and then we've got what, we, what they call rewilding, which I think a lot of British people are familiar with. So these are areas of the farm that we have taken the livestock away and we have introduced hundreds of thousands of – indigenous plants uh, and, and, and rewild there. But the, the livestock grazing is really interesting. Um, we were the first farm in uh, Africa and we might even be in the world to be paid carbon credits for increasing the carbon in the pastures where the cattle graze. Because one of the favorite uh, I don't even know how to describe this. One of the favorite daggers hurled at, at um this already 
fearful human population that has been cowed into believing one and a half degrees warmer caused by all the CO2 is, is going to mean the end of life on earth for us. And therefore, we've all got to be vegan. I mean, it, 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 it's just, it's an obscene lie. And I, and I do hope we can unpack it because veganism is, is an ecological disaster. So our regenerative agriculture method is, is, is proven to regenerate the soil. At the same time, therefore, the biodiversity is increased in the farm. The water holding capacity of our soils has increased. Um, and we are producing nutrient-dense food off the farm. That's a brilliant sort of opening summary. There's loads of stuff that I'd like to go back into. I think the one thing that you've brought out already is, and I think merits further investigation, certainly for the for the UK audience, obviously this is not going to be exclusively consumed by a UK audience, but is the the carbon credit side of it and the, I think perhaps apparent or, or sort of possible contradiction between what you're saying about the uh, like you say, people being driven mad by this idea that we're, you know that, that sort of death and destruction looms if if you know temperature warms up by a degree and a half and all the rest of it, uh, and yet certainly in this country the application of things like carbon credit schemes has been yeah. considered very controversial. Will you just explain the background to that and why it is that you that you sort of pick that route, but also to what extent your business model. Uh, is dependent upon it. Okay, so I'm going to take your answers in reverse question. Our business model is not dependent on carbon credits at all. Okay, they've always been a uh, a small cash injection. Uh, half of the net income received has always gone to our staff, which also makes it a unique project in the world. Um, the the so carbon credits have fallen out of favour. Primarily, well, for two reasons. A lot of people don't agree with the principle um, that you must pay, the polluter can pay someone who's not polluting. Okay? That's one of the things. The second, I believe, the reason, second reason why carbon credits have, have, have sort of collapsed is what I call um, uh, blowback against the ESG mm -hmm. phenomena. You know, so a lot of woke and politically correct and, you know, modern politicians are, are, are jumping on the climate change frenzy. Um, and I do want to just now talk about climate and how it's changed on our farm and, and my issues on climate change. But, 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 but they're using that as, as through the veil of ESG, very much actively supported by the World Economic Forum, to impoverish people and not do anything to improve the environment, but make a lot of people, not to, unfortunately, make very few people a lot richer from this whole thing. So that's one of the reasons carbon credits is it's, it's, it's blowback. You're familiar with the principle of blowback, right? You know, like the, the, one of the reasons for all this migration into Europe is blowback for the Europeans destroying countries in the Middle East. And, 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 and so uh, that's what, one of the things that makes me hopeful about human beings is, is they do, m most of them eventually have enough of being trodden on and then they stand up and there's blowback and often it's quite destructive, but at least humans, some humans have spine and stand up for themselves. Um, the, the, the other reason that happened with the collapse of carbon credits is that there was a, 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 the biggest company in the world to do, was doing carbon credits called Vera. They sold millions of dollars worth of carbon credits for forestation. And this was proved to be, there, how, how can you put this politely, overstated. And so a huge amount of faith disappeared out of the market. And, and from, you know, ultimately any market is only kept alive by faith. I do believe that Carbon credits should form part of the remuneration of farmers who are doing the right thing because they are improving the ecosystem. Just because the pricing mechanism hasn't worked yet, or, or the, 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 if you're improving the environment, doesn't matter who pays you. You should be paid for improving the environment. And similarly, if you're destroying the environment, you should be fined for that. 
in South Africa, how is that being handled? Obviously, what you're doing, by the sounds of it, makes you in a very, very small minority. So how do you see things elsewhere in, in South Africa? And, and, and also, what sort of pressures are put upon you, either by the government or other organisations, to, uh, to sort of make life difficult for you, as it were? So, Charles, tell me this. When does a farmer complain the least? Well, that's a very good question. There are a number of ways in which we could answer that, because I was, I was going to come on to the way in which farmers are being pressured in this country in terms of taking food, uh, oh, sorry, taking land out of food production and therefore having a dependable income, which doesn't require the risk of all the very many inputs into food production, which actually is something I wanted to come on to later. But, uh, but essentially, when, you know, when things are going to plan and, and, you know, whether it's livestock or crops are behaving as they're supposed to, which obviously is a, a minority of the time. No, it's in February because it's the month with the least days. Okay, fair enough. Although this will be a leap year. So, so that's, that's the context of, of farmers complaining. Um, and and, and I, I am so happy that the Germans and the French and it's going to happen soon in England because the British just don't have the balls that the Europeans do, but they'll they'll grow them soon. The Americans are are, are also starting to protest, the, and the mainstream media has completely shut out the farmers' protests, completely. But these guys have had enough, the, and and good for them. You know, uh, uh, I saw a newspaper that said apparently Paris has got three days left of food because these guys are being screwed over now. The governments are screwing them over, but big retailers also screwed them over. You know, in America, for, the farmer only gets 14% of the price that the end consumer pays. Yeah. Okay? So, it's, it's, it, the, the guys haven't thought this thing through. You know, we can so easily produce enough food, nutritious, nutrient-dense food, whilst healing the earth all over the world. But it doesn't suit the status quo. You know, right. the pharmaceutical industry has spent the last four years flexing its muscles, showing us exactly how powerful they are. They shut the world down, for heaven's sake. Okay? Now, those guys, let me ask you this question. Antibiotics either go to animals or to humans? Do animals get more of the antibiotics or do humans get more of the antibiotics? Well, I think animals would probably get more than humans, or at least humans indirectly would, through animals, I suppose, receive uh, a huge amount. Okay. Yeah, let, let's not talk about indirect. Mm. So what percentage of the antibiotics go to animals and what percentage goes to humans? I don't know, but you you tell me about that and, and exactly what your views are on that. And also, just to add on to that, I know you were very outspoken going back to the pharmaceutical side of it. If you could just go back to your views on the on the COVID vaccines, which, again, I'd like to sort of bring into this this discussion. But no, to carry on on the, on the antibiotics. So, Charlie, 90% of all antibiotics in the world go to animals and 10% to humans. Why? Because the clever people and the rich people and academia, which is fully captured, have ordained that you need to raise animals in cages, in confined animal feeding operations. And because they're standing in their own toilet, I don't know if I can swear on this channel or not, but they in the, standing in their own excrement, they are under extreme disease pressure. If you lived in your bathroom or your toilet, rather, you'd be under extreme disease pressure. So they have to get the antibiotics. And then also low-grade and solid antibiotics is a growth promoter. So they get fatter quicker. The consequence, of course, is that antibiotic resistance is a major problem in, the human, in humans. And, and uh, the, the, okay, so the, those guys, what I'm trying to tell you is, it's not in the vested interest of the pharmaceutical industry to allow change. And you can't blame them. Oh, man, if I was making 90% of my money in a certain market, highly profitable, eh? 
highly, highly profitable. And, 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 and guys are threatening that. I'll do everything to, to close them down. And that sort of pressure that you talk about, how, how is that um, affecting you? Is it affecting you? How have you been able to, to work into a system okay. where you're operating outside of that? I think people would be very interested to, to know how you've come to sort of occupy that space and how that puts you at odds with, with those that aren't doing what you're doing. Okay. So, Charlie, let me just answer your question about the COVID jabs before, yeah. uh, b- before I answer that question. So, South Africa was at least six months behind uh, um, America and, um, and the UK, okay? And, and if you wanted it, on my, on my website, which is farmerangus.co.za, uh, under the blog, I wrote a thing, I don't know, half, I can't remember how far into COVID, I can, I can, I can look it up, but I, but I said why I wouldn't force vaccinate, vaccinate my staff, okay? And I gave a whole list of things, and you, we're welcome to read them. Um, the first one was informed consent. We still don't know what was in it. The pharmaceutical companies were never forced to explain what's in it. And, and I mean, there's now been hundreds and hundreds of research papers of people who've been analyzing the stuff. I mean, there's S40 virus in there, which is, is a simian virus, which is specifically designed to cause cancer. I mean, these things are highly poisonous. But so there's, there was no information. So... If you, if you don't know what's in it, how can there be informed consent? Anyway, there's a whole lot of other lists of various things and, you know, it, mRNA and DNA and, and what, 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 but, you know, that's fundamentally, I don't believe it's my right as an employer to take a health decision for my staff. And so, but we, we were very lucky here, it, 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 despite all of South Africa's problems, of which there are many, okay, most people, in fact, the only people who lined up to take the jab are the, 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 the mostly white folk and then the rich black guys who watch mainstream media and you get caught up in the fear of everything. The average Joe on the street who's desperately trying to just get some food on the table and who's black was like, mm, COVID's a white man's disease. Africa doesn't have a good history of being experimented on with vaccines, okay? So why should we take something? And, and so Africa apparently as a continent has like a 6% uh, injection rate, something like that. So, so, so but, but your question was around how do, how, how do we farm within the paradigm? I mean, no man is an island. And so I have friends and mentors in the conventional agricultural system. I don't, philosophically, we don't share their philosophy, but a lot of their systems and, and um, insights I've implemented. Um, so it, for us, it's more of a challenge about production. There's a thing called bird flu that's gone through, uh, well, the world, and there's various strains all the time but what's happened is we're at 50% of our egg production and have been for seven months. We can't buy any replacement hens. So, 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 so these are sort of the, the, the challenges. That we, that we, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, it's just production issues more than, 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 than anything else. And they're not, they're not necessarily unique to me as a farmer. And on the production production side of it and the yield side of it, you did you touched on this a little bit earlier. We're always told that the challenge is to feed the world, and we're taught you know we hear a lot about sort of world poverty, world hunger, and, and all that kind of thing. What you're doing and the way in which you're doing it, the the yield will be different from the industrialized farming system. Will you just talk a bit about how how it is that you would see a world in which hypothetically all farming was conducted in in the manner that you're doing it, and how that would satisfy the the the, the food requirement for the world, or even on a you know on a say on a country basis, how, how would South Africa look if it were farmed uh, as you're farming? Charles, thanks for that question, and we do farm tours all the time. Uh, and inevitably, this is the question people have. 
how are you going to feed the 9 billion by 2050? Okay. And there's a lot of answers to this thing. So just give me a bit of time if you don't mind. My first observation is that the current system is not feeding anybody. It's making humans sick and polluting the planet. So why on earth would anyone in their right mind support a system that is destructive like that? So, so any alternative should be embraced and supported. And the, and the reason it's not is testament to the corporate capture of governments and academia. I'm told that the only country in the world that is mandated to be fully organic and apparently it's got to happen by 2025 is Russia. Now, I don't speak Russian. I've read a lot of Putin's speeches, but he does strike me as someone who genuinely has his people's interests at heart. You tell me Rishi Sunak, who's just signed a two and a half billion pound deal with Ukraine, where he's going to send all the money to, 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 to Ukraine, has Britain's, British people's best interests at heart. Please, man. So, 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 the 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 the, 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 the system doesn't feed anybody and it's highly damaging to the environment okay regenerative agriculture which i'm going to talk a little bit of detail about now produces nutrient-dense food because that's the, that's the elephant in the room we are a malnourished species and as long as we stay malnourished we are going to be incapable of being human beings and what I mean by that is living in peace, being happy. You know, things human beings are designed to be, but we're not manifesting them, okay? Because we're malnourished. Obesity, starvation, infertility, antidepressants, or malnutrition. Of course, there's trauma and, 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 and. But a properly nourished being can handle any uh, uh, anything that comes at it. So, let's talk about South Africa because I did this exercise in South Africa. In fact, let's just talk about carbon credits again. We have, over the last 12 years, sequestered, so sequestered is the process of pulling carbon out of the air in, and putting it into the soil. An average of 12.83 tons of CO2 per hectare per year. What it means is that if every farm in South Africa farmed the way we did, we would sequester 2.83 times our total emissions. And guess what? South Africa is a tiny little country, but we're the 14th biggest emitter of CO2 because it's our electricity is coal-powered. And, 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 and so, you know, if every farm in South Africa put a third as much CO2 into their soils as we do, then we're net zero. You know that phrase that they try and hit us with. Okay? So that's just a side effect of going regenerative. We're not talking about nutrient density yet. There is, there is a guy in America called Dan Kittred who's developing a nutrient density meter. Because, Charles, let me tell you, the future of retail is going to be this. You're going to walk into your shop you're going to pick up a handheld meter and you're going to scan your products for quality. And you're going to pick the most nutrient-dense one. Dan Kittredge has tested carrots. There are, some carrots have 150 times the nutrients that others have. All depend on how they're raised and how they're farmed. So, so it's not good enough to say, oh, I'm vegetarian or I'm vegan or I'm an omnivore and I eat carrots. No. What type of carrots do you eat? Are you eating the most nutrient-dense ones, which will get all the nutrition you need, I mean, from the carrot, or not? So, so South Africa, I did this exercise. And again, I've only farmed in South Africa. I, I, I can do this exercise. I guess we could do it for any country in the world. And some will be able to produce more and some less. And there are areas of South Africa that are really fertile and other areas which are very arid. However, if 
it, it, it's for South Africa, the, the, again, it's on my blog. It's Can South Africa Be Fed Regeneratively is the title of the, of the blog post. There's a whole spreadsheet built with these assumptions. And my assumptions are as follows. The first thing we do is we take out all the sugar cane. So sugar has no place in the human diet. It just makes sick and fat. The second thing, we take out all the gum plantations, these eucalyptus trees, which they, they just destroy the ecology. We then take all the animals out of their cages and we put them on multi-species pastures. And the multi-species pastures aren't these huge, huge, they are big pastures, but we have the shelter belts of mixed nut fruit trees planted all, and indigenous trees planted all around them so to bring in incredible biodiversity. We change, therefore, half the maize plant that doesn't need to be there anymore because cattle will now not be grainivores anymore, but herbivores as they're designed to be. And the same with lamb. They won't be grainivores, they'll be herbivores. So we then change all the farms to what we call rotational grazing, which is what we practice. A lot of animals, small space, short period of time, followed by a long resting period. That's what's enabled the carbon to increase in our soil. That's how, the, that's how the richest soils in the world, the American prairies, were created. Okay? Um, and so, so the gum plantations go, the, the corn gets cut in half, we change everything to rotational grazing. Under that scenario, which again is a possibility and not a probability, South Africa be becomes a net exporter of grass-fed beef. And, and again, we can do these exercises. Why have you guys got thousands and thousands of acres of rape fields? That stuff is poison. It's exploding your, literally exploding your heart. It's a primary ingredient in margarine. A margarine factory has got to be explosion proof. So I'm saying to you, Charles, our governments, I'm not, you know, I'd love these governments to break down. But fundamentally, they've forgotten that they are civil servants. They need to create the environment where people can thrive. And if a population has to rely on margarine because the price of good food has been shot through the roof, it's a disaster. And I do want to say one thing about pricing of food before people say, oh, this is an elitist thing. I say to my staff, let's, because they love buying these, I think in England they call them crisps. Here we call them chips. They're these little uh, Doritos or Frito-Lays or whatever they are, they're a 20, 20 gram pack. Yeah, that's the favorite thing these guys buy. And then the farm is littered, or the, not my farm, because I've trained my guys not to litter, but the, you know, the general area of Cape Town is littered with these bloody chip packets. So, so I said to them, you're going to go and pay 20 rand for a chip packet. That, that translates to 163 or 164 rand a kilogram. Beef mints is 90 rand a kilogram. That's what you've got to think, start thinking about, is nutrition. Your argument will be very, very coherent and, uh, and you know, understandable to, to the audience. I think the thing that seems to be such an obstacle is how is the, the information that you hold, the knowledge that you hold, the, the reason that underpins all of it, how is that communicated effectively? How is it that that message spreads? And you know, you talk about academia and uh, media, government being captured. Uh, what's your, you know, in a way, what do you envision for how that starts to change? Charlie, the first thing is we have conversations like this, you and I, and we hope that someone listening is moved by it, because the 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 fact is that human beings are not going to change because of some intellectual thing that's presented to them. They change when they are moved in their hearts. And so, so what, what we can hope is that people are moved. And so there's a big emphasis for us on making sure our packaging is telling the story and it engages people. Okay? And, 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 and again, you know, I, I, there's a guy called Buckminster Fuller. I don't know if you're familiar with Buck, Buckminster Fuller's work out of the U.S. He's long dead. But one of the things that he said was, don't fight the old, build the new. And so, you know, that's, the, the, I mean, like, let's say, in the media, why fight the BBC? 
just create new media. And the BBC is so part of the old. It upholds everything that's abhorrent about the old. So, so just don't, don't get pissed off with them. Look at them every now and then to see what's happening in the madhouse, but just build the new. And it's, it, 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 it's harder building the new depending on where you are. I mean, the irony of America, for example, is the USA gave birth to this monstrosity that is conventional agriculture. Feedlots and Monsanto and, and, and all these things came out of America. And yet, the regenerative agriculture movement in America is so strong. It's the strongest there. It's a fertile place to go. And, and I'm told in the UK, there are a couple of farmers really doing amazing things. I mean, uh, uh, there, there's, there's a farm called Yatesbury Farm, which I think is in Wiltshire. Incredible things they're doing. Then there's another guy called Annie Cato called Wild Farmed. You know, and the, and, and, and there's, there's this community, there's this list of people growing. Um, but the, you know, we're facing it. We, it's a mega trend, folks. As people have urbanized, they've lost touch with nature and therefore lost touch with their food. And people are still urbanizing. Over the time that you've been doing what you have been doing, how have you perceived the people around you responding to it? And and sort of in the wider context across the country, are you aware of many other people in South Africa doing similar things? There are a few farms doing things, and, and whether they've been inspired by me or not, I, I, it really doesn't matter. Um, I, I open source everything. I publish all my plans everywhere. Um, the interesting thing is that the Americans have a saying, nature bats last, and it's a, from baseball. And conventional farming is so much in violation of nature that even the most hardcore conventional guys – are slowly being forced to become more biological and therefore more regenerative in their thinking. Because eventually their soils are so exhausted that they, they have to turn to biological things, which are more regenerative. My biggest issue is the retailers. How can we get them focused on nutrient density? And then, of course, does it suit the retailer to produce super healthy foods, nutrient dense foods. You know, you'd rather produce addictive foods to get people to come back. Loaded with sugar, loaded with palm oils. All these, all, all these things. Because what you want to do is you want to create long shelf life. Will you talk a bit about your your sort of routes to market? You know, you talk about the retailers and uh, and how that side of it works. So, so will you just explain a bit about how you reach your customer base with that in mind? So. Pre-COVID, 65% of my clients were hotels and restaurants. That went to zero and, and forced us to get involved with big retail. When I talk about big retail, I'm talking about national retail. We always did have some local shops where we used to sell to. And I, you know, I wasn't treated, I was actually fortunately very well treated by big retail. I, 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 uh, and, 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 and so we unfortunately broke up with one retailer. We're, now, we're still in with, a, with, a, with, a, with another retailer, and we're doing fine. Um, they pay us well. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I haven't had a problem with them. I do believe that it's a, it's a nice way to get your products out nationally. Um, it has its challenges. We are very lucky to collaborate with certain people to help us get our products to market. I'm actually looking at the moment of sending some of my stuff to Dubai, which a lot of people are very critical of. Oh, you must produce locally for local consumption. My view is, you know, I might have some local consumption, but if I'm being paid a proper amount of money somewhere else, so be it. I'll send it there. Um, so the, the, we spend 50% of our time focused on production and 50% of our time focused on marketing. Because if you, are, if you have a brand, you're a price maker. If you're a commodity producer, you're a price taker. And I told you, I told you earlier, farmers only get 14% of what the end consumer pays. Mm -hmm. They've yeah, taken think, all the risk. Yeah. All the risk. They've done all the work. They've, they've had to wait months for their cash. 
<laughs> the system, whether you're a regenerative farmer or a conventional farmer, the system is stacked against you. It just is. And, 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 and you know, my only hope is that, is that as people get sicker, they start realizing there's something wrong. And we need more people like you interviewing farmers like us and get people to cotton onto it. But I'm very happy that the farmers in, I need to investigate more about the messaging that the farmers in Europe are, are, are sending. And now I see in America are sending to their governments. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily saying, look, you need to support regenerative agriculture. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not doing that. But they are saying we are tired of being screwed over. And I think in the, for me, it's inevitable that this kind of stuff was going to happen in the death stages of capitalism. Because the capitalist system is extracting every single thing that it can. But these farmers, are they're done. You can't extract any more from them. Now they want their lifestyle. I mean, in Holland, they want to take half of the farmer's land. Half of the land. Holland, Holland second to America, produces the most food in the world. It's an agricultural marvel. Yeah, I, I think people, certainly a United Kingdom audience, will be, will be completely sort of gripped by this. But, but it seems the most daunting aspect of it for those that are producing food and at the mercy of either the supermarkets or the big cooperatives, it, the, making that step to change what you're doing and, and that feeling of complete insecurity, it seems that that's what's sort of imprisoning people within the current system. And so I think, you know, your story, I hope, will be a, a really, you know, an inspiring one. But obviously you've, I, I think I'm right in saying that you have gone into it from day one, wanting to do it in the manner that you are. So just just go back a little bit to to prior to that because obviously you have you know your family background is in farming so in a way it's no it's not a massive surprise that you've come to be doing what you're doing but but just explain a little bit about how it was that you went from you know particularly the Goldman bit being in that system and then and then ending up where you are I mean the sort of the genesis of your philosophy I, I guess yeah so you are right I, I did grow up in a farm I was very blessed to. Uh, spend my youth on the farm. However, we would only live half the year on the farm and the other half of the year we lived in Cape Town. My father was in parliament. And so as a result of that, he never he never farmed for any prolonged period of time. He always had farm managers farming for him. And, and also he didn't have a direct relationship with the end consumer. He was a commodity producer. I mean, he did produce bulls for other farmers at one stage uh, and did it quite well. But, um, you know, and, and there was no discussion of regenerative agriculture and, and, and it's just no one talked about it. And, and so no one knew anything about it. Um, I didn't, well, we didn't go back to the farm. I didn't really want to live on the farm. And also the farms went under a land claim, which turned out to be a seven-year fight between my father and, and the government. And it was a totally bogus land claim. But all the farms around him had eventually given up, so he also sold out to the government. So there's no, there's no future for us on the farms that we'd grown up on anyway. And I wanted to get into finance, and I'm, I miraculously got into Goldman Sachs in the early 2000s, um, which is a long, long, lucky story. And I was there for just over four years. I'd, my promotion was to Tokyo to do a different thing called derivative sales. I'd, we ummed and awed about it, declined it, because we just had our second child. And I think when you have children, you start thinking about your upbringing. And we had a particularly blessed and happy upbringing. And so my wife hadn't had quite as rural an upbringing as I did, but we still had this option of 23rd floor of a building in Tokyo or build a house on a farm in Stellenbosch. Uh, and it was a very big decision uh, at the time. Um, Financially, it's been a bad decision. So if I stuck it out of Goldman for the last 20-something years, it'd be very different. <laughs> but in every other aspect, it's, it's been the right move. Um, and, 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 and so I didn't leave Goldman wanting to farm. I just wanted to grow up, bring my young kids up. We ended up building a house. It ended up being a clay house. As you can see behind me, it's a carved. The walls look carved, but that's clay that we built them out of. Uh, and I must apologize also that I didn't open both curtains equally. We'll actually close that curtain. So I hope the light's okay. 
Um, you should have told me at the beginning of this interview that light was a problem. Um, and, 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 and so what happened with me, Charles, was in uh, June of 2008, I read a book by Michael Pollan, E-O-L-L-A-N, called The Omnivore's Dilemma, which is the most extraordinary book about the world's food systems. I'd never thought about the world's food systems until then. And I, I put that book down and say, because the book basically deals about three food systems in the world. And the middle part of the book is devoted to a grass-based regenerative agriculture system pioneered by a man called Joel Salatin in the U.S. So I put the book down and I said to my wife, you know, I want to be like Joel. And so that's what we started, December of 2008, uh, on a little part of the farm. Now I manage the whole farm. It's been, orga- it's been organic certified for a long time. Um, yeah, so, and, and every day I'm learning more and more about where we are. So, so I'm, a, I'm 180 degrees of where I was 20 years, 20, yeah, 20 years ago. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I was very happy when I was a Goldman. I drank the Kool-Aid, man. But my belief system today is very, very different from what it was then. And have you seen, as a result of what you are doing, have you seen people make similar sort of ideological journeys sort of as a result of what you're doing? No, listen, uh, Charles, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, the farmers I know who have, who have and are converting to regenerative agriculture have really come to it in and of themselves. I mean, for example, probably the biggest regenerative farmer in the country Who's, who's not organic yet, but very close, was um, his young son, little kid, little baby, was sort of playing around in the potato field. And it suddenly dawned on him what he'd been spraying on that potato field. And he, he, was, he was horrified. And that was the thing that started this process. Just go into a bit of detail on that. Just just talk a bit about the the chemical sort of you know piece of it, because obviously there will be people listening who are au fait with the types of things that do get sprayed and and introduced into the food system. But just give a bit bit of detail, a bit of background to that, please. I guess the conventional agriculture system is a manifestation of of the fear based system, which is. And again, I was fortunate not to have gone to agricultural uh, schools or studied agriculture at university because those guys are indoctrinated in a fear-based system. If you don't spray this, this is going to happen. If you don't spray this, this is going to happen. If, 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 if. Whereas like potatoes, for example, you can't believe how many poisons are sprayed on potatoes. Okay. I saw a post from someone this morning and I'm pretty sure it was in the UK. These guys planted a wildflower meadow around the potato field and had a conventional potato field, you know, on the neighboring farm without any biodiversity near it. There were 75% less aphids, potato aphids on the potatoes that were near the flowers than on the other ones. Because what's happened, because we caught up in this um, uh, mindset of, of disconnection of little widgets we can't see things in context. We, 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 can't, we, we can't incorporate a lot of things into our systems. We have to compartmentalize everything. So it's just a potato field. It was just a wheat field before that. Whereas this Yatesbury farm I was telling you about, in, 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 I think it's in Wiltshire, it might be in Somerset. So Yatesbury farm, those guys have biodiversity, which is off the charts on their farm. But they spend two years where they have these multi-species pastures, they call them herbal lays, the cattle graze there. And then they work that stuff into the soil and then they plant their crops. So they don't need to use any pesticides and fungicides and herbicides and, you know, you, you name it. They're, they're organic and biodynamic, the products that, that, that come off their farm. So it's, it, it, but they've had a huge mind shift. It's been a very big challenge for, 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 for uh, the Gantts and, 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 and dealing with pests. You know, in fact, apparently he now lectures at Reading University on integrated pest management. Um, yeah, ab- ab- about how to deal, because what happens is the first law of nature is the law of diversity. You, know, you I don't know, what's your favorite food? Meat of some description. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, well, then now, you know, now, now, I'm, now, now my own example is going to blow up in my face because I was going to say you can't just eat meat all the time, but that's not true because <laughs> I've got, <laughs> no, seriously, I've got a, friends of mine who for the last four years have been very strict carnivores and that they are in supreme condition, mm. mentally, physically, they're very, very well. But mostly the answer is, oh, you know, it's, it's eggs and bacon on some white toast, or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. The point is that you can't just do one thing. You need diversity. But we haven't applied that to the way our food is grown. We have these massive, massive, massive crops of, of sick plants that are obviously going to be attacked by insects. What do you think is the role of the insect in the ecosystem? Well, I think the audience would be much more interested in, uh, in hearing from you exactly what the, the role of the insect is. But, but as well as talking about that, because actually the, your potato, the potato field stories will really chime. I've spoken quite a lot on UK Column News about the various environmental land management schemes, which are sort of underway in the UK. That's what they call them. And that's basically setting aside land. So it, it, in principle, it sounds not a million miles from what you're doing. You know, you have areas of land that, you, as you would describe, are, are rewilding. In the UK at the moment, the ministry is, is saying, well, all right, well, we will pay you X to put that amount of land into, you know, like you say, wildflower meadow or, or reed bed or whatever it is. Um, but they're not seeking to change any of the agricultural practices that are going on around those areas. So from, you know, from what you're saying, the, in actual fact, the effect on biodiversity is presumably going to be very limited. Yeah, it, Charles, we sort of, in a way, we're circling back to what we've spoken about earlier, which is until you can measure the pesticides and the poisons in the food that you buy in the supermarket, agriculture is not going to change. Mm. Farmers are, 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 are completely able to change but they're producing what the market's demanding of them. You know, if there was fair money in grass-fed beef and there were more carnivores in the UK, there'd be less people planting rape. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and if people realized that there was, you know, it's not so much the gluten, but it's the glyphosate, which is a poison to dry out the gluten that people are allergic to, but people would, would just eat less wheat, there'd be more multi-species pastures. You know, the, a very famous, he's dead now, but he was in the 50s and 60s, he, he was at his most famous, a man called Newton, Newman Turner in the UK. He had the number one ranked Jersey dairy herd in the UK. And the first foot and mouth outbreak came and he wrote a public letter, it was published in the Times, the Minister of Agriculture because they started culling these animals. And he said, it is a management problem, foot and mouth. Bring me a herd that has foot and mouth onto my farm. I'll mix them with my cattle all day long for two weeks. And I'll show you my, none of my cattle will get foot and mouth. Now, they chickened out and didn't take him up on his offer. But he had 54 varieties of grasses, legumes, herbs and things growing in his pastures or his herbal lays, whatever you used to call them. So here was a guy maxing out on diversity and foot and mouth didn't do anything to it. Yeah. So, so again, Charles, we've got to get out of this mindset of monocultures. Yeah. Just tell us a bit about that, Angus. You, 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 we've talked a lot about the sort of bigger picture stuff and the, and the philosophical side of it, which is completely compelling. But I think people would like to just have a bit of a snapshot of, of what, you know, on a, on a more sort of minute level, what it is you are doing. Just talk about the, the various species that you have, you know, the livestock and, and that kind of thing. And also how demand for each of your products has perhaps changed over the years and what you've seen a sort of, you know, an interest in increasing and, and all that kind of stuff. I think people just, just you know, just a picture of the, the day to day, as it were. So the first thing to understand is we are very fortunate with our weather, okay? It's 40 degrees here today, which is the hottest day of the year, of the summer so far. So it's usually not quite as hot. And, and now our, our winters, I mean, to an English person to say we have a winter, is, it, 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 it's an insult to you guys because you guys know what cold and wet winters are. But, but so we do, you know, have rain. It's, 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 it's rainy and, 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 and cold by our standards in, in, in our winters. But even with that, we don't have any barns. So we don't need to put our cattle, for example, in a barn. Whereas you guys are four to five months 
you have your cattle in barns. So it's a very different uh, uh, way in, in which we can farm. We, we practice what's called rotational grazing, uh, inspired by a man called Alan Savory. And the principle, as I said earlier, was a lot of animals in a small space for a short period of time, followed by a long resting period. So we wait at least six weeks before any animal is allowed to regraze an area. And so you have this diversity that increases. Your carbon cycle stays intact because the plant has matured. Um, because you're putting a lot of animals in a small space, they, there's, there's competition for grazing, so they eat everything. They mow it all down. Whereas the conventional way to look after animals is you put them in a paddock for a week or a month. And like children, they'll take the sweetest things. And that plant eventually goes, I'm so tired of being hammered, it just disappears. And a less palatable species comes in its place. You know, the, the, again, I, I'm not familiar with the UK landscape and how it's changed over time. I believe hundreds of years ago, there are a lot more forests in the UK. Um, but in the last summer, friends of mine who lived there were saying, you get kind of heat waves. But when they walked in the um, uh, hedgerows, it was much cooler, okay? Because the hedgerows were established, some of them were natural hedgerows. There's a working ecosystem. It's not like these massive open fields where they've just monocultured everything. And, 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 and I, what I'm trying to say is the, the monoculture mindset is everywhere. UK, South Africa, USA, you name it. So the way to change it, I believe, is to talk about nutrient density, to, inc to encourage supporting your local farmer. It's, very e it's much easier in the UK, I think, to support a local farmer because your logistics infrastructure is much more uh, complete than ours. It's, it's difficult and expensive to move things around. The other complication, of course, is that meat needs a cold chain. Yeah, that's why it's nice being in with big retail because they've taken care of those logistics. So I'm told that it's easier to move meat around the UK than it is around South Africa. Not just because the UK is a smaller country, but your infrastructure works better than ours. I'm sure that's the case. And there must be all sorts of challenges, I think, that you would face that would be completely different here. Just, just give us a quick insight into the, your relationship with the government and how, I mean, do they play any part in, in what you're doing? And do they have any influence over the way in which you do what you do? Uh, they, I loved it when you said earlier, you talked about set aside, because one of the things I do know in the UK is if you set aside land, and, 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 and I do want to say that, unfortunately, the set aside What's great about for set-aside land in the UK as a farmer is getting paid to set-aside land. The problem with a set-aside is that it should actually be managed and managed with livestock, certainly at the beginning stages, before it's fully rewilded, to improve the ecosystem. But those guys don't have that mindset. They're like, no livestock's allowed anywhere Um you know, the most famous rewilding place in the UK is, is called is Ladies Isabella Tree. Uh, I don't know what, 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 they, what their farms, but they've now, parts of their farm, they're farming regeneratively now for 20 years having no livestock on because they've realized that ecosystems need livestock to improve. And Charlie, this is the most fundamental message we, we, we're trying to get across is that use livestock properly. It's not the cow, it's the how. And if you do that properly, you can heal the ecosystem and produce nutrient-dense food. The bit that I wanted to get was just to, sort of to perhaps illustrate the differences between um, government intervention here and what you face no, in South sorry, Africa. Sorry. No, 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 just, to, but just give me a quick snapshot on, on the government side of it. Okay. So unlike the UK government, which pays you to set aside, the South African government has no interest in agriculture at all. You know, we, we, for example, live in the Western Cape, which is near Cape Town. It's one of nine provinces in the country. It's supposedly the best run province, and it is. If you drive through South Africa, it's pretty obvious that the Western Cape has got its stuff together and the rest of the country is, is really is going backwards pretty quickly. Despite that, uh, four years ago, I sold 85% of my egg company to my staff. So it's an 85% black-owned 
employee-owned egg company. We've tried for four years to get government funding to support us, just with various things. Still, nothing. My latest conversation was last week with, with, with one of the officials who I've got to know quite well. He's a very sweet man who said, you know, I, I, it, he refers me through the committee. He's kind of steering me through the whole thing. He says, no, it's just no, no one makes decisions in December and January. So two months of the year, no one's prepared to make any decisions. And, 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 and what, what do I ascribe this to, if I can anticipate a question? I'd, I, I ascribe it to the fact that there, there are no consequences for being a bad civil servant. There's no downside. Just to interject again, just on that, just to, to, just to sort of take it to its limit, do you, what I was going to ask actually is whether you consider there to be any bias against you because of the views that you hold uh, being, you know, sort of away from conventional practice, or I call it conventional, but, you know, the sort of industrial practices. Do you think there's any bias in the system loaded against you? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of the views that you would espouse you know, or that you, the things that we've covered you know, during the course of the interview would certainly in the UK be considered very controversial. And we've talked about sort of what's in mainstream media and all the rest of it. But do you think that your yes. your stance has any bearing on whether or not, you know, the, the government or the civil service would engage with you on that? Charlie, answer is no. They, uh, the government couldn't care less whether I'm farming regeneratively or destructively. Um, the government just doesn't care about agriculture. Mm. In fact, most people don't care about agriculture. I, I uh, interestingly, I believe there's this, I mean, I really believe it there and, I, and I've experienced it firsthand. There's a stigma or a bias in the English speaking world against anyone who's not, uh, an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, maybe a UK column media person. Um, you know, we, we, or stockbroker, yeah, which I was, and now I'm a second-rate citizen. Friends of mine are overtly said it, but like, what happened to you? You went from being a stockbroker to, you know, you tell you arrive and say, oh, my daughter's now dating a plumber. People will be appalled. You know, the Germans don't have that. The Germans don't have bias against the artisan. Um, so, so, so it's a stigma that, 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 that that's a those are for me much more challenging as a farmer than whether I've got a loud mouth about regenerative agriculture or not. It, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel any of that part. That's a really interesting insight. And actually just, you know, sort of related to that, like the, the, the status of a, a farmer, but also bearing in mind what you were saying about the, you know, your staff taking on a share of the egg business and whatnot. It's it's so hard to get any sense of an accurate idea of things from the UK in the mainstream. There's obviously there's a lot of reporting and a lot of counter reporting on the situation of white farmers in South Africa and violence against white farmers in South Africa, land claims and, and all that kind of thing. What what's your view of that, Charles? There is a, a, a an epidemic of violence in South Africa. There are supposedly four thousand farmers who've been murdered since. 1994, okay, which is now nearly 30 years. Uh, my neighbor down the road from me, as, as the, the, the reason I was two minutes late getting on this call was I was, I was, I was responding to my neighbor. Okay, he's three farms down from me. Now he's on a main road. I'm just off a main road. But last night he, he, he wasn't attacked, but they took one of his cattle, they butchered it in the field, took everything except left the hide there. Okay? So, so if the, 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 for a lot of farmers in a lot of the rural areas, they don't, they've moved their families into town and they will commute out to their farm. So there is definitely a attack on farmers. This, the, the third biggest political party in this country is called the EFF. Their big uh, a leader thing, they had a 10-year celebration, Kill the boer, kill the farmer, kill the boer, kill the farmer. You know, I, I mean, okay, so let's say you've killed the farmers. Where, how are you going to eat, big man? Have you, have you, have you thought of, no. Yeah. But, 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 but so, so it's a problem. But crime is a problem in South Africa. 
And I mean, we've got I've got a lot of if you want to, we can talk lots of theories about it, but at its fundamental basis, there's no consequences for committing crime. That'll be very sobering for people in in European audiences to to hear. Um, I mean, to what extent do you can you sort of mitigate against that? And and sort of tied into that question is what's your you know where do you see your own business and and land going in the next few years? Okay, so the other challenge that faces farmers in South Africa, which is why when when uh, so it's called EWC expropriation without compensation. So the government has been trying for maybe six years, seven years, to push through legislation for expropriation without compensation. Because apparently it's righting the wrongs of apartheid 30 years down the line. What it actually is, is that the, the, the guys have looted and stolen so much that there's nothing left to loot or steal except private property. And so this is purely a Trojan horse with which to steal private property, okay? But like Mugabe, it's convenient to target the farmers, okay? I mean, Mugabe was was a brilliant, brilliant politician. He's the most amazing example of a diversion tactic from his own corruption, his own stealing, turn it on to the farmers, predominantly, predominantly white farmers in Zim, take a country which was the breadbasket of Africa to be entire, almost entirely dependent on food aid. I mean, it's it's extraordinary what 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 happened there, um, but but what I'm saying to you is that the, the um, political environment is very much anti-farms and anti-farmers, but our government, the ANC government, is anti-poor. So I, I don't feel any worse than poor people. All the legislation passed in South Africa in the last thirty years is anti-poor. It's not neutral on poor. It's anti-poor. Every single bit of legislation that goes to the African government makes life worse for the poor. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fairly grim thought. Um, we're we're going to have to start sort of winding up. So just give me a just give me an idea, or let's let's give the audience an idea of of where you see your project sort of your your project going and what developments you anticipate happening either on a local level or, or a sort of global one in terms of food production over the next five or ten years yeah i, I mean <laughs> i've got to distinguish between what i would dream would happen and what i think would happen okay Fair enough. <laughs> what i dream would happen would be that scenario that i that i sketched from you uh, earlier um about how to turn the world regenerative and 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 governments actually legislating against poisonous foods and 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 executing against poisonous foods you know the 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 it's not right that a government allows margarine which explodes your heart to be sold in the shops and then of course where does margarine come from it's rapeseed and palm oil they cut down 36 football fields of rainforest every hour of every day. Mostly palm oil, soya, corn. Uh, you've destroyed biodiversity. Um, so I, I, I'm unfortunately think that the status quo and the vested interest, remember we referred earlier in our conversation, the pharmaceutical industry in, in reference to the 90% of antibiotics go to animals type scenario. The vested interests are so strong that these guys would rather see everything go extinct than admit that they are damaging things and change it. So really, Charlie, the only hope is to bypass this system. Okay? Encourage the retailers to only sell organic food. Because that's the healthy stuff. Try where you can to support a local farmer. Uh, it's not going to come from government. And also, the population that eats healthy food is not going to require so much medication. So expect blowback from the pharmaceutical industry. And the last thing I want to tell you, Charlie, is there, there's an amazing book written by a man called Weston A. Price, E-R-I-C-E. And the book is called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It is a study of 10 years of traveling around the world, mid-1920s onwards, 10 years, with the aim of finding societies that had never eaten the white man's food. So there's tin, food, sugar, highly processed food, ancestral eating, 
And he found them all over the place. He even found a remote valley in Switzerland that had never opened up before. And in all these places, he found there were no mental diseases. There was no uh, uh, anxieties. People were treated well up into old age. Women, women conceived unassisted. What did we talk about fertility earlier? Women gave birth unassisted. Okay? So, so these were whole societies. Yes, they fought each other and, and, and they didn't necessarily have the modern amenities that we had, but they were happier people. And that's all that we can hope for is that, is that we become more whole as our food becomes more whole because our ecosystem will also become more whole at the same time. I think that that's a perfect place to close, uh, a positive vision for the future. Uh, Angus, tell the audience, please, where can people find out more about what you're doing? And uh, particularly for, I'm sure, the viewers and listeners who are in South Africa, where, where exactly does one go to meet Farmer Angus and see what he's up to? Yeah, Charlie, so we have a website. It's farmerangus.co.za. Uh, for my sins, I'm on Instagram. Uh, that's probably the most, that's the best way to keep up to date with what's going on the farm. And that's Farmer Angus Speer, S-P-I-E-R. We welcome visitors to the farm anytime. We've got a total open door policy. We do have uh, once a month on a Sunday for those who, are, who work during the week, a tour. It's quite fun. Um, yeah, man. And uh, reach out to us. If you are not already supporting the UK column financially, I hope that you will consider doing so, so that we can continue to put on interviews with people as engaging as Farmer Angus. And details and links for this interview will be with it at ukcolumn.org. So it just remains for me to thank Angus very much indeed for what's been a fascinating insight into an area of life that is of completely critical importance. So Angus, it's been, a, it's been a complete pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed and uh, keep in touch.